Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 8th, 2012, and my guest is Ronald Coase. Professor Coase won the Nobel Prize in 1991, and he is the author of two of the most important economics articles of the 20th century, The Nature of the Firm, published in 1937, and The Problem of Social Costs, published in 1960. He is perhaps one of the five most influential economists of the last 100 years, and I'm very happy that he has been alive for all 100 of those years and a little bit more having been born in 1910. Professor Coase, welcome to EconTalk. Well, I'm very pleased to, to be talking to you, and I'm looking forward to what we're going to say. First, I want to ask you about your youth. How did you get interested in economics, and how did you end up in the United States? Well... You must realize I was born in, in, in London. I, I was born to parents who went to school, uh, went to work in uh, uh, 12, 12 years old. So they had very little education. Uh, so I had very little education either. Uh, I I was very weak in my legs, and I went to a school for physical defectives run by the local council, and. Uh, we were taught very little. I remember learning how to to make a basket weaver, uh, a basket, and how to weave it. Uh, that was the sort of thing I was taught. I had very little education until I went to the secondary school. Uh, and how did you get from a, a school for physical defectives to become a, a graduate student in economics? Oh, I got a scholarship from the local council to go to the secondary school, the Kilburn Grammar School. And I went there, and while there, I... Uh, studied and got a scholarship and uh, uh, I'm trying to think just what I, what I did hmm. uh, but uh, I I really didn't start studying until I got to a secondary school where I had a scholarship. And in your career, when you were younger, which economists had the biggest influence on you and who, who have you come to respect as an economist over the, over the decades? Oh, I didn't really study much to, at all. I didn't study uh, economics until I got to, to the London School of Economics, which I, where I went uh, from the secondary school. And when you were there at the LSE, who, which economist did you learn the most from? Uh, 
Arnold, <coughs> excuse me, Arnold Plant was, was the economist who uh, taught me uh, such little economics as I knew. I didn't really know very much then. Uh, I just studied, studied with him. I took a degree uh, in commerce. Uh, hmm. I I ne never studied economics at all. We just studied a whole range of sub subjects like accounting and and industrial law, and so on, uh, for, for a commerce degree, not an economics degree. And we really had very little economics at all. Now, that still can be true in graduate school. <laughs> Um, economics has changed a lot since since then, uh, and you've been critical of what you call blackboard economics. Oh yes. What does that mean to you? What do you What do you oh. mean by blackboard economics? Blackboard economics is an economics which you can put on the blackboard, which in which you study an imaginary system. It's not. Empirically based at all is not concerned with uh, what really happens. It's, it's what you imagine uh, could happen, and what you imagine didn't happen. So I've been very critical of modern economics, which is too abstract. Uh, that's what blackboard economics is. It's, it's something you can put on on the blackboard, but now it doesn't exist. So, what do you recommend? For I recommend yeah, more empirical work. Study what actually happens, and uh, start from there. Uh, Modern empirical work in economics is very um, abstract as well, though. It has a lot of statistics and aggregates. That's not what you mean by empirical work, I don't think. I don't think you mean econometrics, right? Oh, no. It, I don't mean <coughs> the study that people do with... Uh, uh, with a lot of statistics and so on, not finding out what really happens and getting uh, conclusions based on, on the these investigations, not of what actually happens, but on uh, bunches of statistics. I, I my my view is that you should get down and study what actually happens. But uh, economists don't do that, to, by and large. No, it's rare. Well, let's, let's talk about the problem of social cost. Uh, there's a famous dinner that took place at Aaron Director's house uh, in, at the University of Chicago where everybody thought you were wrong when the dinner started – but by the end of the – including Milton Friedman, who was, according to George Stigler, your biggest uh, and most frequent adversary at that dinner. He talked the most, according to Stigler. But by the end of the evening, they all came over to your side. What do you remember about that dinner? Well, it was uh, more as was said. People started off thinking that I was wrong. 
and uh, I couldn't see why they thought I was wrong. Uh, what I had done was to say two and two equals four, and they had said that's that isn't right. It's five. Uh, it was as a simple thing like, like like that. I don't know why they thought I was wrong, since I didn't say anything that wasn't uh, obvious. Well, at least to you, I I think they probably didn't think you. They thought it was two plus three, so they thought two plus two was four, but they thought it was two plus three, so they thought you were talking about five. I think. Well, whatever it was, it was a complete misunderstanding. That must have been a lot of fun, the end of that dinner. <laughs> well, it was. But I couldn't understand why they didn't understand why, why, what I was talking about before. It was all a bit of a mystery to me. I thought I was stating the obvious. And they couldn't accept it. But in one evening, they could. Sometimes it takes a lifetime for people to change their minds about such things. It's pretty amazing that uh, that, that group only did it in a few hours. Well, it did. It, it, it changed their views. But I don't know that it changed their views in, in a very sensible way because they went on to talk about something called the Coase Theorem, and I never liked the Coase Theorem. It is a, I, it, it is a common phrase. Um, I, I also uh, don't like it. I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute, but why don't you like it? I don't like it because it's, it's uh, a proposition of, about a, a, a system in which there, there were no uh, transaction cost. It's a system which which couldn't exist, and therefore it's it's a quite imaginary. Yeah, it's a straw man on a blackboard. Uh, I think would be the best way to describe it. It's um, for those who haven't read the paper, you should. It's accessible to anyone who understands English. Um, the only language you have to understand. You don't have to understand the language of mathematics. And the idea of the paper is that um, when you're assigning property rights in the face of an externality, in the face of harm being caused by one party to another, the first part of the paper says that if 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 transaction costs are zero, then yes, well, in a way, it's unfortunate that that I did that. Uh, I only did this in order to explain my views. I thought, let's, let's talk about a system where there were no trans transaction costs. But the, it's an imaginary system. There always are trans transaction costs. Well, it's like Galileo assuming there's no friction. But, of course, there is. So if you don't... You better plan on it, um, and it depends on – sometimes that friction is very important. Sometimes it's less important, but but the idea is that if there were no transactions cost, then when you assign property rights to the two parties, because there are no transactions costs, th then it's easy for the parties to reassign rights, making side payments. But I always was taught, and I was taught this by uh, Deirdre McCloskey when I was in Econ 300 at the University of Chicago, that the real lesson of your paper – was that because transaction costs are not zero, you should assign the property rights very carefully. And ideally, you should assign them to the party. You should, you should assign property rights so that the party who has the least cost of bearing the externality does so because they might not be able to reassign the rights. It might be too expensive to renegotiate so that the assignment of property rights is very important. Uh, that's that's what he told us the Coase theorem was. I know you don't like the phrase, but it's not so bad if at least he gets the the insight right. I think the problem in the literature is that many people used the first part, if there are no transaction costs, 
as a straw man to say that you were wrong because, of course, they're transaction costs. Well, but you knew that. It was a terrible, <laughs> unfortunate turn of, of events in the literature. Yes. <laughs> Excuse me, I just... Yes, it was a, a discussion at cross-purposes in which the other party was uh, had a completely wrong idea of what I was getting at. And uh, it, it took a, a whole evening of all these economists to, to, to get it right. But then in the end, they didn't get it right because they they invented something called the Coase Theorem, which I don't like. So part of your paper was a reaction to A.C. Pugu, who argued that in the face of an externality, positive or negative, we need to change the price that people face. If it's a positive externality, we should subsidize it. If it's a negative externality, we should tax it. And your point was that that's not necessarily true. And that in particular, sometimes it's better to do nothing and let the people who are harmed find an alternative way to avoid the externality or pay for the reducing the, the harm by the person who's uh, whose actions are creating it. And yet, despite your paper and despite now it's been over 50 years, and I think uh, it had a huge influence. It, it, many people say it was it created the whole field of law and economics. It forced economists to look at, at transaction costs. It forced them to look at externalities in a different way. And yet the Pagu approach remains, I think, very much the standard – way that people think about these things, even despite the fact that you, I think, did a very good job of calling it into question. Do you think that's, do you think I'm right? Oh, Is, you're right. Why, why people make the mistakes they make, I can't understand, but they go on doing it, and uh, economics doesn't progress in the way I'd like to see progress but but uh, stupidity is uh, very common in all human activities well it's particularly common when it's hard to experimentally test results in complex systems so people can persist <clears throat> believing lots of things that aren't necessarily true they could be true but they can't prove that they're true. They can't confirm their own suspicions and ideas um, in social science very difficult. If you, if you had your way, which no man does, but if you had your way, what would you like that paper to have achieved? What would you want have happen in the real world from having written that paper? What policy do you think it – policy implications the paper has for legislation and legal systems? I don't know that you can end up with the policy uh, unless you study how things actually happen in the real world. And that's what I'd like to see people do, uh, not all this abstract theorizing, all this mathematics and so on. I'd like to see people go study how things actually work. And then you do something, <laughs> but by and large, this isn't what economists do. That's why I call it blackboard economics. It's abstract. And of course, in the policy world, politics plays a big role. It's not just a search for the truth. I think about your 1959 paper on the Federal Communications Commission, which had some of the ideas of the problem of social cost in it, and you talked about the advantages of assigning property rights and and letting people buy and sell uh, access to, to the air 
uh, for broadcasting, which eventually something like that happened. It took about 40 years. Um, were you yes. su- Were you surprised at that? No, not after you've studied how things actually operate. It, it's a surprise that it took as little time as 40 years. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's not possible to study how things are, are dealt with without uh, realizing is the, the importance of stupidity in human behavior. It's, uh, it's well, awful when you think how the, the war needn't have happened. Uh, the First World War, which I lived through, was a, was an absolute tragedy. With when millions of men were killed for no apparent reason, and the Second World War, when Hitler uh, started it, needn't have happened at all. Hitler could have been stopped years before, but no one. Did it? And uh, Chamberlain, if you remember, went and saw Hitler uh, a year or two before the war started, got a piece of paper which he waved in the air and said, This. (laughs) Excuse me. He said, This. This is peace in our time. And the war started uh, one or two years afterwards. Yeah, it was, it was a bad prediction. Uh, and, I, and I can't say I remember it the way you do, uh, but uh, I, I do remember it. Um, speaking of, the, of that time, uh, did you have contact with uh, Keynes and Hayek, two uh, great economists of, of that era in England? Yes, I was... I was very friendly with Hayek. I liked him, and he liked me, but we didn't have great contact. He he tended to deal with these big questions, and I'm always interested in how the actual system operates, and therefore in much smaller matters than Hayek. And how how about Keynes? Did you know Keynes? Uh, I, uh, I I can tell you I I was helping uh when uh Britain was trying to get a loan from the United States immediately after the war. And I was talking uh, uh, to one of Keynes's assistants, and Keynes came in the room and walked over to us and... Uh, the man I was talking to said, this is Coase who's helping us with the statistics. I don't think you know him. And Keynes said, no, I don't, and walked off. <laughs> and that's my life with Keynes. Uh, that's short. <laughs> uh, that's very funny. Um, let's, um, let's go back to, uh, well, let's talk about your 1937 paper, The Nature of the Firm. You were trying to answer a question, um, which doesn't always, it's an interesting question because 
it's um, remains a good question. It was a good question in 1937. It's still a good question, which is if if capitalism and markets and prices, the Hayekian system of communicating information via price signals, if it works so well, why do firms exist? Because firms are almost by definition top-down rather than bottom-up. They use command and control rather than purchases within the firm, uh, although there's there are exceptions to that. Some firms do use price signals within their decision-making inside the firm, but many firms do not. Their decisions are made not by prices but by fiat, by decisions uh, on the top. Now, you wrote that paper when you were very, very young, the first part of it, correct? That's right. I wrote it while I was an undergraduate. Uh, it it's, uh, seems obvious to me, if you go into a firm and you say to someone, why did you do this? He'd say, because I was told to do it. He doesn't talk about pricing at all. He, well, I, almost all the things you do within a firm are not controlled directly by prices at all. You know, your boss tells you what to do, and you do it. And you, how did you come to write that paper as an undergraduate? I was uh, interested in how firms actually operate. And if you start studying how firms actually operate, you find that they are not concerned with prices directly at all, uh, a, a person who who is working in a firm does what he's told. So, and that's the way it operates. A firm is an island of socialism in a capitalist world. Oh well, I was a socialist <laughs> at that time. That that had some influence. Only I didn't start with the views that I now have, but I was a socialist. My my parents voted for the Labour Party, and uh, one uh, important uh, person that we knew was Ernest Bevin, who was uh, uh, General Secretary of the Transport and General Workers Union, which is the largest union in Britain. So I, uh, in those early days, I was, I was a socialist. And that may have had some effect in, in leading me to the nature of the firm. I, I don't know. Very likely. So your insight was that firms act like socialists because it's cheaper. That's and, right. And it's cheaper because it's not free to use the price system. cheaper because the price system is a very expensive system. Uh, if you think of all the things you, you have to know in order to make, to make a bargain, uh, it's obvious it's not a cheap system and a system that, uh, 
that avoids uh, negotiations or is uh, is one that saves a lot of costs. So one of the one of the things that I, I love about that paper is it forces you to think about these costs, which you might not notice. It forces you to notice that some systems that you think might not work so well actually work better than you think. Um, but it's hard to test those ideas, right? It, you can't – one of the implications of the paper is that when transactions costs are high, you're more likely to use command and control – but you can't really – it's hard to measure transaction costs. It's hard to quantify the theory. Is that correct? Yes. Or is it irrelevant? Well, no, it's very relevant. But the state of economics is such that people don't try to measure these things, try to study them. And so people – can engage in discussions and explanations without any real knowledge of what happens in the real world. So, in modern industrial organization, uh, although your paper has had a huge impact and and began a um, a whole field within industrial organization, a focus on institutional issues, institution, the new institutional economics, which influenced many, many other scholars. At the same time, there was the blackboard part of industrial organization, which is game theory and other aspects of, of industrial organization. But, but game theory became the predominant way that the economics profession thought about the behavior of the firm – where game theory is focused on strategic interactions between players with significant market power. Did you? Th what was your reaction to that literature and, uh, and its influence on the study of the firm? I think the influence was wholly bad because people developed highly theoretical approaches instead of approaches based on what actually happens, and it's uh, only recently, really, that the people have begun to study what really happens as, as against uh, engaging in what I called blackboard economics. Do you think we understand? Uh, the thing I would, I mean, I when I look back at the last... Uh, 70 years of, of thinking about the firm, I'm not sure we've made much progress. Um, it It's true that people do occasionally spend some time looking at what actually goes on. Uh, there's one view that says the people who figure that out keep it to themselves because it's profitable. Um, but other people than yourself, people like Harold Demsetz and others, have, have decried the state of, of – of modern theories of the firm, the defenders of game theory certainly are th remain enthusiastic about it despite your critique. And it is a, still a dominant approach, I think, for business students. I think many business students still are taught a great deal of game theory. The question is, what would you th want them to learn instead? Now, it's one thing to say that economists should learn more about firms, but do we have we learned anything in the last seventy years that would be useful to a a future executive or manager or student of economics? I don't think so. I think the the, the economic treatment the treatment by economists has by and large got worse if 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 that's possible. No, I, I think the time has come when we should study 
what actually happens in study firms and how they operate and learn from that. The challenge and I think is going to going to happen in that in that narrow sense. I'm optimistic. But you could argue that 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 approach of studying what actually happens at firms that that's the essence of say the Harvard MBA, which is a case study approach, where you look at particular examples of what firms did in different situations. Sometimes it's an issue of strategy or marketing, and rather than make a grand general theory, you look at it, you go on a case by case basis. The problem yeah. with that is is that every case is a little bit different, so it's hard to know. It's hard to generalize. It's hard to have a body of knowledge. Maybe all you end up with is a body of cases. Well, we shouldn't give up an approach because it's hard. Uh, life is hard. And it, it isn't... We, we shouldn't be looking for easy ways to do things, but for ways to solve the problem. Yeah, I, well, I agree with that. Let, let me ask you a little bit about uh, politics. Um, your paper on the problem of social cost and your paper on the lighthouse, which was published in 1974, which we have yet to talk about. It's a wonderful paper. Uh, it was one of my favorite papers. I remember reading it in graduate school, coming across it and being so excited about it. Um, these papers have been used by people who are uh, laissez-faire or, or free market oriented to suggest that the obvious case for government intervention in the case of externalities with the tax or regulation or in the case of the lighthouse with public provision of a public good, that that case is not so obvious. And what is your feeling about the political implications uh, of your of those papers? I, I'm not a, a person who thinks that the government should give up everything. I, uh, how much... The government should give up will be found by studying how the government operates. But the assumption that governments always do the right thing is not true. They, they make lots of errors and where they're most likely to make errors can be found only by studying how governments operate. My uh, approach to the subject of what governments should do is, is to be based on studies or how governments actually operate and I've had a lot of experience. I I worked for the British government uh, for many years, and uh, I I saw how decisions are made and uh, stupidity is very common. Well, that's why. Trial and error and competition are often a better solution than one size fits all. In some areas, I wouldn't say this true in all areas. I, I, if you study the military and the conduct of of war and so on, you find that the areas are, are enormous. Yeah. I don't know whether you're familiar with 
what happened uh, leading up to the to the war, but it was uh, it was absolute stupidity. Hitler could have been could have been stopped early on, but no one did it, and the result was uh, a horrible war. The evil effects which we still uh, experience today. No doubt. Uh, we, but we were talking about uh, understanding what government actually does, and you, you emphasized that it's important to study government. You were at the University of Virginia when James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock and others were pioneering what came to be called public choice. What was it like there, and uh, what do you think of that work? Well, I was there at the time when Buchanan was trying to to build up a a department, and uh, I went there from Buffalo to be part of that. What we didn't realize was that the dean at Virginia thought we were all a lot of of right wing extremists, and he he opposed everything we were trying to do, and finally succeeded in preventing Buchanan doing what he wanted to do, which was to build build up a, a department. And uh, Buchanan left, Tullock left, I left, uh, Warren Nutter didn't leave because when he got an offer of a job uh, at, I think, UCLA, the, the vice chancellor, uh, vetoed it. Uh, you see, uh, the reason was that uh, Warren Nutter, who was making estimates of the Russian reduction, ended up with uh, a figure lower than the official figure of the British government. Mm. This was thought to be due to his bias. Yeah. <laughs> we, we now know that Warren Natter's own figures were too high. Yeah, as if the as if the British government didn't have a bias either, yeah. Going back to Buchanan and Tullock and Nutter, uh, what did you think of their work? And what do you think of it now? Do you think it's uh, the kind of economics you like or not like? Well, by and large, it's, uh, it moves along lines that are not mine. And so, so I, I uh, admired the, the uh, I didn't necessarily agree with them. And uh, I just got on with my own work. Yeah, you, you've always been, um, listen to your own drummer. Um, thank, thank God, it's a different drummer and it's uh, made economics a much more interesting field because of that. Let's turn to your latest work. Um, which is on China. How did you get interested in China? Well, I've been interested in China very superficially for a long time. I was very impressed by reading Marco Polo, 
and this was China in the 13th, 13th century. And it was a country in many ways ahead, ahead of what was going on in Europe or in Britain. And uh, I thought it was a country that had great potential. And I, I still do. So your your new book is called How China Became Capitalist, which is a, is co-authored with Ning Wang. Uh, how capitalist is China? Well, it it is very capitalist, but it's not capitalism as we know it. It's a it is it's capitalism with Chinese characteristics, and this you would expect. But the, the country is being transformed, and it's not being transformed as people in Europe commonly think as a result of, of the Chinese government's operations, but as the result of what we call marginal revolution changes that are taking place despite the Chinese government. Uh, there are these village enterprises. There are unemployed people who, who start businesses. Uh, it's, it's all going forward in in China without the uh, control of of the, the Chinese government. The Chinese government commonly doesn't know what's going on. It's it's. Uh, But there's still a large government role in the economy, and they yeah. they steer a lot of resources. They, as I understand it, they've the government has done a lot of the building and infrastructure. Much of it probably not going to be useful, not productive. Um, so it's not you're emphasizing the importance of the things they don't know about, but they do know about some things, and they're very active. Correct. They're doing a, a, the government is doing a lot of things, most of them being failures. It's it's a, an economy which under the Chinese Com Communist Party, but the Chinese Communist Party commonly doesn't know what's going on. How did? How do you think that happened? There was a point where they had a much tighter control over things. Why did things loosen up to allow things that could happen that they didn't know about? And why did those things become so much more important? Well, I think China is a very big country and it's very difficult to control. It's very difficult to know what's what's going on, and so things can happen. Uh, there's, there's a Chinese saying, and I don't know that I have it completely correctly, uh, the mountain is high and the emperor is far away. <laughs> That's a nice expression, even if you have it wrong. It's a <laughs> that's a very Hayekian expression. It's about the knowledge problem, right? It's yeah. there's local knowledge that that only the people in the vicinity have. Um, yeah, I, I would I would add, the mountain is high, the emperor is far away, and sometimes he has no clothes. Um, yeah. Well, do, do you think do you think Chinese prosperity is 
But we talked earlier about Warren Nutter's estimates of Russian production and that they were even they were much lower than the official estimates and uh and ended up being lower than what we actually found out to be the case. I wonder if anybody really has any idea of what's actually going on in China, especially when so much of what is measured is probably that government activity that is – I'm not sure they're measuring it correctly. I'm not sure if you can measure it correctly. So I'm not sure China's definitely getting – the standard of living there has improved. There's no doubt about that. How much I think is hard to say, and do you think it will persist? Well – has has made estimates which are are very great for the future, and I I think he's probably right with whether the the growth in China will be as great as he is estimating. We don't know, but it could be. It could be higher because I think there's a, a large possibility for further growth in China. The the output per capita, the productivity of workers in China, in China is now very low. Their output is great because their population is great. Right. Yeah, people, um, I think on many fronts, people misunderstand the impact of China's success and and its significance. I I believe it's a good thing uh, for the world and good for the Chinese because the Chinese people are a big part of the world. So I'm happy to see them doing better. But a lot of people think it's bad for the United States, and I don't. Um, don't agree with that. Do you? No, I don't. I, I have, our productivity ahead is vastly greater than that in, in China and uh, likely to continue so. What do you think is the state of property rights in China these days? As someone who spent much of his life thinking about the importance of property rights and the assignment of property rights and the costs of reassigning property rights, how is China doing on that front? Very badly. Uh, China has a long way to to go to to catch up with the West in terms of productivity in terms of the institutions required uh, to to make uh, a really good economic system. And that's why I think we're going to see uh, further growth in China. It's got a long way, way to go. But, of course, we don't know if their political system will create the right incentives for that growth. Oh, it gives the bad incentives. But uh, things have, have happened largely outside the government control. The... the uh, Private farming, for example, in agriculture has developed while opposed by the government or even made it illegal by the government. But it's gone ahead because the government cannot control everything. And the same is is true in many other areas. So, so you you had an extraordinary situation in which under the Chinese Communist Party you have had a growth 
of markets uh, and uh, private ownership and so on. In those private settings, um, are, are there contracts and informal contracts, or is are they using the legal system, but in their own way? It's a very undeveloped legal system, and things have happened without a, a proper legal system. That's why I, it's now being developed, why we can expect the growth in China is, is going to continue. It's got a long, long way to go. Uh, and it's not very innovative. It, 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 they, they produce a large part of their stuff on the basis of orders from abroad. Yeah. So what is produced is not determined in, in China, but is determined in Europe and the Americas. Yeah, right. Right now, they're the workshop of the world. Whether they will be something different in twenty-five years, I guess, remains to be seen. That's right. They they do things that other people describe and want done, but that yeah. won't continue. Right. And as China becomes more innovative. Uh, their production will become more valuable and more significant. We, we, we know very few uh, Chinese uh, uh, I'm trying to think what the word is trademarks uh, patents Patterns. It, it, it's all developed in in America and the Europe and Europe, and then the Chinese do the things to order. Yeah, that will change. You're right. Um, that will change. That will change, and uh, as it changes. Chinese production will go up and be more valuable. And it's got a long way to go. And it's a big country. It's a quarter of the, the world's population. It's kind of amazing. Well, we're almost out of time. I just want to ask you one last question. You've mentioned a few times that there's a lot of stupidity in the world. And having been born in 1910, you've been... Um, blessed and unfortunate enough to see a great deal of it. World wars, genocide, bad economics, uh, but there have been lots of good things. And, and overall, since 1910, the world has gotten remarkably more pleasant if you survived those things. Uh, of course, it depends where you were born and where you grew up. But it, it makes you wonder, um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the future, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist about the human enterprise? Well, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. The, the, the opportunities are so great, and I think people would take advantage of them very slowly, of course, and not without further mistakes. But uh, I'm optimistic about the future. And I hope I'm right. So do I. Uh, it's been a, a great honor to have you on the program, and um, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to be with us today. My guest today has been Ronald Coase. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk, Professor Coase. Goodbye. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. 
For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.